Actually, there's three things in life that are difficult. One is to climb a fence that's leaning towards you. The other is to kiss a girl that's leaning away from you. And the third is to cover the pulpit for Thomas uh, when he's out. Now, the first one, you can see the difficulty in that. The second one is none of your business. And the third one, I guess we'll see how that goes today. You know, the 30 years I've been a believer, I can count on one hand the number of times I have encountered a believer who said they are happy with where their prayer life is today. And if you find yourself in that camp, I'm hoping today will be an encouragement for you because we're going to talk about the issue of providence and prayer. We're going to see how our prayers interact with God's hand of providence. And we call providence the invisible hand of God that works behind the scenes to bring about uh, the things, uh, to bring about His purpose, His plan, His will, the things that we encounter every day falls under the providential hand of God. You know, prayer is probably the most critically needed of all the spiritual disciplines, and yet, uh, by and large, it is probably the most neglected. If you were to evaluate this morning how much time a week you spend in prayer versus how much time you spend on your phones, I think you might have the answer as to how neglected prayer really is. Of all the spiritual disciplines, it's probably the most misunderstood, and it's simply become a low priority for the church of God, which I would argue is probably why the church has become so ineffective in the culture. It's because believers simply don't pray. Last time uh, we were together, uh, we talked about how God providentially uses our planning to bring about His will. Somehow our plans and His providence work together. Uh, The time before that, we looked at how God uses pain in our lives providentially to move us in the direction that He would have us to go. And sometimes He uses pain even to bring blessing down the road. And we've been focusing on providence, if you missed that. Providence, the invisible hand of God, and how human life intersects with the will of God. And we come now to chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. And uh, what I'm going to do is, we're not going to stay strictly in chapter 4, but we're going to, um, we're going to find ourselves pulling prayers out of the book of Ruth and trying to understand how they all come together. Uh, and, and, uh, and this week, and essentially what we're going to do is see uh, three ways that we as believers need to learn to pray so that we might come in line with God's providence and will. We know that our prayers somehow interact with God's will, but, but we want to see here in the text how we can cooperate with God and His in his venture, if you will, in this world. 
So if you're not there already, we'll look at uh, Ruth chapter 4 to start with. I'm just going to read through this chapter, and as we go along, we'll, as I said, pick out prayers throughout the book. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, that is the Goel, uh, we talked about this, this is the Redeemer, the the next closest relative uh, to Naomi, Uh, The relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, oh, sounds good. I will redeem it. (laughs) I'm I'm reading into the text a little bit in case you this is the uh, amplified version. Then Boaz said, well, there is a catch. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, wait a minute, that's not part of the deal. He said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So this was a turn of events from the Lord that now Boaz is free and clear to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Melon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Melon, to be my wife. Notice Ruth, not Naomi. (laughs) The widow of Melon to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brother's or from the court of the birthplace, court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, of of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah 
through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the, woman, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. So, as I said, we're going to see three ways that we must learn to pray in order to align ourselves or come in to line with God's providence and His will. You'll see in in the book that when you see the word may, uh, they're expressing a prayer. May the Lord do this. May the Lord do that. May He bless you. May this son, etc. And so those are prayers, and we're going to lift those out and talk about them. And the first way we need to learn to pray this morning is powerfully. And there's two examples of this in the text. Powerfully. Uh, what we're talking about here is, is powerful prayer that begins with the determination of the individual. Faithful individuals pray powerfully because they pray in faith. And the first example of this is over in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And this is Ruth's conversion prayer. And she, uh, but Ruth, remember, she wanted to stay with Naomi and go back to Naomi's homeland with her. And so this is her prayer of conversion. She says in verse 16, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die, and the Lord, and there I will be buried. Thus, may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death departs you and me. So there you have it again. The, may the Lord do this to me if I don't follow through. Um, Ruth's prayer was powerful, if you look at the text, because she was willing to die in order to see it come to fruition. Notice she said, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Uh, it's not just, I'm going to follow you, Naomi, back to your homeland. It's, I'm going to leave my people, my gods, and I am going to convert to your religion and your God, and I am going to follow you, and I am going to stay with you till, till I die. That's a powerful prayer. 
She's binding herself not only to the God of Israel, but to Naomi in a lifetime commitment until death. That is a powerful prayer. It's inspiring. And I could say a lot about this, but um, I have to narrow my comments, so I'm going to be kind of focused here. You know, we live in a time and an age of easy believism. Wouldn't you agree? Folks say they believe in Christ, but let's face it, their commitment to church is less than what it is to their cell phone contract. I mean, people make horrible commitments today. They are not people who follow through. And I think living in Idaho, we have discovered that uh, employers are looking for people that are willing to work. They're looking for people that are willing to make a commitment. As far as the faith goes, uh, these folks feel some emotional quiver when they walk the aisle, right? Something, something tugs at their heartstrings. They may feel an emotional tug. And so they walk the aisle and they make some sort of commitment of faith. They make a decision. We've heard that word now and again, haven't we? People make decisions for Christ, but they don't become disciples or followers of Christ. And they they walk the aisle because they're sad about the consequences of their sin and where they find themselves in life. And they may say some sort of sinner's prayer that somebody tells them to repeat. Yet their sin remains. And they're lost as the day is long. Because there's no true repentance. There's no true change of heart. There's no regeneration. There's no turning away from the old life and the old sin and the old idols that enslave them and toward the living God. They, they continue to live in sin, and yet they think they're saved. And the church in America is full of terrors because of decisions without regeneration and conversion. A repentant prayer is a powerful prayer because it's life-altering. Do you understand that? It's life-altering. Ruth left everything behind to follow the God of Israel. One only has to think of the New Testament, the fishermen, the apostles. They left everything, right? They left their boats. They left their nets. They followed Jesus. They left their families. The call to discipleship was to leave it all and follow Him. So I would just ask you this morning, if your commitment to the words of that sinner's prayer were not genuine at the time, if you said some sort of prayer that really wasn't meant from your heart, and you've never seen any life change, then I I would ask you, why bother? I mean, what's the point? You know, our understanding of God informs our prayer. And what do we know to be true about God? He is 
omniscient, right? So he, he knows what's going on in our hearts. And if our prayers aren't sincere, if they are not from the heart, if they are not purposeful in that way, then what's the point? Do we really think we're going to fake him out? He knows everything. The Scriptures say, Behold, O Lord, before there was a word on my lips, you knew it. You're not surprising him, folks. And you're not impressing anyone with a fake profession of faith. See, Ruth was willing to give up everything to follow after Christ. I should say, to follow after the God of Israel and Naomi. Christ hadn't come yet. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, they did look forward to the Redeemer, the redemption that was coming. So, I'm not far off. Well, let's talk about the cost of discipleship for just a moment. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself take up his cross, and follow me, right? So let me ask you a question. What does it mean to take up your cross and to follow him? Ever thought about that? I've always heard, and I'm sure you have too, it means we need to be willing to die for Jesus. Is that what it means? No, it's not what it means. The cross in the first century was a visible demonstration of the public execution of a criminal. And and essentially what it meant was this person's last act on earth was that they were going to be forced to submit to the rule of Rome. Okay? They were they were just crushed before the power of Rome as a, as a display of Rome's authority. So, to take up your cross and to follow Him is a figure of speech. And it's anybody who lived in the Roman Empire would understand that. Jesus wasn't the only person who was crucified. It was common practice. But it means to submit to the authority against which one had previously rebelled. If you were in rebellion against Rome, your defiance would be publicly crushed. And you would be forced to come under the rule of Rome. So in the same way, to deny yourself means to cease rebelling against the king and his rule. To cease being hostile to God and to stop being disobedient to God. To take up your cross means to submit actively to the king and his reign and to obey God and to do his will. Michael Green said that in his journal article. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. A powerful prayer is one that subjects your will to God's. 
It's willing to die to see it to come to fruition. And we can learn a lot from Ruth in this respect. Her prayer was realized in a way that no one could have imagined. She is recorded forever. A Moabitess is recorded forever in the lineage of the Jewish Messiah. How does that happen other than through the providence of God? The second example would be Boaz's prayers. Boaz's prayers were powerful because he was willing, and listen to this, he was willing to be the answer to those prayers himself. Notice in chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now let your eyes meander over to chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than your first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. This idea of coverings is the same word as wings. So when he prayed, may you come under the, the wings of the Almighty, under whom you've sought refuge, it's the same as over here where she says, spread your covering over me. She's, she's asking for protection, and he had already prayed for her protection. He's the means of his very own prayer. He prayed that she would be blessed, that her wages would be full. Then do you remember what happened in the story? He gave her all this grain to take back for her and Naomi. He blessed her for her wages. He is the means, he is the answer to his own prayers. That's pretty powerful, huh? See, you and I, when we pray for people, are we willing to be used of God to be the answer to our own prayers? To be the means that God would use to bring somebody to faith. We always hear the question, well, if God's sovereign, why can't He just save everybody? Well, the answer is God has ordained the means as well as the end. And the means are you. Believers, that the gospel would go. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. It's you. It's you. And if you don't speak, they won't hear. And and listen, we talked about this in our small group on Wednesday night. You have to speak. People are not going to come to faith just observing your holy lifestyle. 
right? Even Jesus, the epitome of living a holy lifestyle, nobody came to faith just by watching him. He spoke the gospel. You have to speak. You have to be willing to be used to be the means to answer those prayers. And I know God could always use other means, but that would deny you the blessing. Right? And we don't know. We just don't know. Family members we pray for, co-workers, we're praying for them, and we may be the very answer ourselves. I like what Randy Smith said. He said, prayer is yearning to see not my will, but God's will done. Prayer is about aligning myself with Him. Prayer is about knowing that God has ordained all things, not just the end, but also the means by which it comes about. And it's about knowing that my prayers are part of those means. So powerful prayer is powerful because it's offered by individuals who are faithful in their commitment to the Lord. And they're sensitive to the Spirit's leading because they're practiced at it. The prayers are powerful because they're tapped into the will of the Almighty who Himself has ordained all things. Even the means by which He answers prayer. God's providence rules and reigns. And if we're praying in line with God's providence, we're not bringing Him down to us. He's bringing us up to Him. We're tapping into His plan. He's not trying to be jammed into ours. Do you understand the difference? It's like a tugboat pulling a massive ship. It's the other way around. You know, the ship is, the big ship is the one with the power. We're just sort of going along for the ride and guiding it. We're not guiding anything, though. I mean, analogies break down, but the reality is it's not our plan, it's His. And we just need to align ourselves with that plan in order to tap into it. So our prayers need to be purposeful that way. Purposeful. The second way we need to learn to pray is No, I messed up my own. We were talking about powerfully. Now we're talking about purposely. (laughs) Look at chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. I tipped my hand. I gave you the point before we were ready for it. 11 to 13. All the people who were in the court and the elders said... We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And then obviously the Lord enabled her to conceive There it is again, the providence of God at work, and she bore a son. But look at this prayer. These prayers are offered up on behalf of Ruth, verse 11, Boaz, verse 12. They are purposeful, are they not? 
They're praying for an offspring. They're praying for a male offspring. They're praying for wealth. They're praying for power. They're praying for fame. And if you understand your Old Testament at all, if you've read it, uh, you understand that these prayers come right out of the Old Testament. A couple of stories inform the backdrop of this prayer. Remember, uh, they asked that she have children as Jacob's wives. You remember Jacob in Genesis, right? And you remember Rachel and Leah? It was through these unions that the twelve tribes of Israel were born. The whole nation was founded on these two women and their children. Two of the most famous women in Israel's history. And, and these ladies are asking for this for them. For Boaz, uh, the people and elders pray that this Leveratic marriage would result in a male heir. And they cite Genesis 38, the first such Leveratic marriage in the Old Testament. And it wasn't just for a male heir, it was for power and fame. The interesting thing about these prayers is the Lord answered them. He enabled Ruth not only to conceive, verse 13, but also to give birth to a son, a male heir. So the Lord answered these prayers of faith from these people. Look at the genealogy in chapter 4. This union results in the birth of the ancestor of the greatest king in Israel's history, King David's grandfather. Their child would be the grandfather of the most famous king in Israel's history. This child, they say, was born to Naomi, not to Ruth. And this, in fact, was written after these events occurred. This was written much later with a purpose, though. A purpose that it would show that that King David just didn't come out of nowhere in Israel's history. King David came from a lineage of faithful believers, a faithful remnant. David's family tree is one of faithfulness, faithful believers. And that's why he was such a man of faith himself. So where do we go with this? Well, in order for our prayers to be offered purposefully, I think we need to look at the focus of our prayer life. You know, a lot of us struggle with prayer. We, it's easy, but it's hard, right? The hardest seminary class I took was a class on prayer. And I'll tell you why it was hard, because one of the requirements was to pray for an hour every day. You had to pray for an hour, and then you had to write down your prayers and turn them in to be graded. You think that wasn't intimidating. And the man who taught the class, Dr. Roskup, had two earned doctor degrees. And he wrote a 4,000-page book on prayers of the Bible. 
Yeah, peewee. I felt like a peewee. But one of the reasons I believe that we struggle with our prayer life is because we really don't pray beyond what we see as our immediate needs. You know what I mean? You know, and I, I'm not slamming anybody. I'm not naming names. I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind when I say this. But, you know, it's Aunt Betty's knee or it's so-and-so's, you know, back hurting. Or, and those things are valid and legitimate. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying get out of the forest and get to the treetops. Right? Get to the treetops and see the horizon of what God is doing in this world. Get a bigger picture. Put your camera not on torso, but on panorama. Right? See what God is doing in the world. And tap into that. Tap into that. Be purposeful in your prayers. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Paul requests a door for the Word that I may speak for the mysteries of Christ. Right? Evangelism, the gospel, the mystery of Christ, big topics. And let me be used of God to do that. James 4, 1-3, I think this is a, a common passage that's used in biblical counseling because it talks about where do quarrels come from among you, Right? And, and the, the truth is, it's our desires. And, and then he goes on to say, uh, you ask, but you ask with the wrong motives. Uh, what's he talking about there? What does he mean, ask? He's talking about prayer. You pray, but you pray with the wrong motives. So, of course, you're not going to get your prayers answered. The the purpose of our prayers should align with God's purposes in, in the reason why He saved us in the first place. Why did He save you? Ever ask yourself that question? Why me? I come from a long line of Roman Catholics. And I was the first one in my family to be a believer, and as far as I know, I'm the only one. Why me? What are you, what are you doing, Lord? What do you want from me? It's a fair question. What is God's will for His church? Certainly it's worship, but the real reason we're in this world is worship, but how do we increase the worship that the Lord receives? Through evangelism. Through sharing the Gospel. And as we do that, as believers are edified, as unbelievers are evangelized, the worship of the Creator grows. And that's ultimately why the church is here. That's big picture. Right? Why have you been saved? So that others might be saved. So that God might receive more worship. Our prayers should be purposeful. 
Look at chapter 4, verses 14 to 15 in the book of Ruth. I can't find anything in this Bible. The pages are too thick. I want to talk in a final point here about passion. We should pray powerfully. We should pray purposefully. And we should pray passionately. Passionate prayer demonstrates a a need for God's power and, and a dependence upon His provision. And I think most of us, including myself, we don't really depend on God all that much through our day-to-day living, do we? We just kind of get into the, what do they call those things uh, that the rats go on? A uh, what? Hamster wheel. Yeah, we kind of get on the hamster wheel and we just start running, right? And that's how our day is. We just run, 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 run. Um, we really don't depend upon God. But remember how this story of Ruth began. It was, it was Naomi in all this pain. She had lost her husband. She had lost her two children. Any hope of the future was gone. And she was destitute, poor, in a foreign land. But God threw it all, and I believe Naomi threw it all, never lost her faith. Because Ruth was drawn, I'm reading in the white spaces a little bit here, but Ruth didn't just say, I'm going to follow you, Naomi. What did she say? I'm going to follow your God. Why? Because I don't think Naomi ever lost faith, even in the midst of tragedy. And I think Ruth knew that and really wanted to follow that. Now, these women, in verse 14, they, they pray for Naomi. And, and they praise God for His provision of this grandson, Obed. And the language here indicates that Obed is her Redeemer, not Ruth's. And their prayer is that He would restore the life of this woman who was as good as dead. And that he would sustain her in his old age, in her old age. Verse 15, they also praise God for Ruth, who is better to her than seven sons. See, God has provided in so many ways through this Moabite daughter-in-law. It's unbelievable. Now, who says... God's Word does not hold women in high esteem. Right? I think God values women just as much as He values men. And in this case, seven men. (laughs) She is better, one woman is better than seven sons. Seven being the number of perfection in Hebrew. It couldn't get any better.
Now, apparently, if you look at the text, Boaz must not have had a son already. So in conceiving a son by the widow of Malon, providentially, the inheritance of Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech all go to this firstborn son, Obed. Jackpot. Right? Jackpot. This was beyond simply prayer for an individual. In its scope, it redeemed an entire family. And ultimately, it was for the benefit of God's unfolding plan of redemption. That's a huge prayer. That's a passionate prayer. One writer said this, If most of our prayers are really a reflection of our concepts of the glory and power of God, our theology is in serious need of overhaul. If our prayers reflect or betray what we really think about God, then we must not think very much of Him. That's the bottom line. That's what he's saying. A big view of God leads to big, passionate prayers. A small view of God leads to non-existent prayers. I don't really need Him. He's just sort of a thing that I have as part of my life, but I got this. And then, of course, there's the old argument, why pray if God is sovereign? Right? Why bother? God's sovereign. Why should I pray? Well, number one, because we're dependent on Him, but, but one of the means that He has ordained to provide for us is that of prayer. In other words, God wants us to acknowledge our need for His provision by praying. We should pray passionately for God's sovereign will to be done in our lives, uh, believing that He is the only one who can accomplish it. And when you really think about it, why do we pray? And why do we pray to Him? Because He is the only one that can make it happen. Let me ask you a question this morning. What are you passionate about? Anything? Are you passionate about anything? Are you lukewarm? I mean, you can't help but look at the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus tells his disciples to pray then in this way. And we kind of read through this and we go, Our Father, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, right? This is the Our Father prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know, that's kind of how we read this, right? But that's not how Jesus meant for this to be done. <laughs> This is, oh, our Father, right? 
up in heaven, Lord God. That's how this should come out. Holy, holy, holy is your name. Your kingdom. God, bring your kingdom here now. May what's going on up there be going on down here. Lord God, provide for us this day. We would be helpless without you. One coronavirus has already wiped out the toilet paper at Costco. We would be helpless without God's provision. We just don't feel it that acutely. One strain of the bird flu could wipe out the entire chicken industry. Right? We just don't feel it that acutely because we always have food on the grocery stores, on the shelves. It's always there. It always has been, but it could be easily gone. Give us this day our daily bread. And Father, oh Father, forgive us. Forgive us all of our debts. Father, please forgive us. And to the degree that I forgive other people, Father, forgive me. Let me be not only forgiven, but a forgiving person. God, help me. And, and keep me from the temptations that have a stranglehold on me. Father, deliver us. Save me. Save me from the evil one. Or from evil, depending on how you translate that. It's meant to be, beloved, a passionate prayer. Right? Think of the Pharisee. You should have this in your mind. Think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right? You know that story. They go up to the temple to pray. And what does the Pharisee do? He makes an appearance. You know? Thank you that I'm not like them. And what about the tax collector? He is beating his breast. He's crying to God. He's saying, forgive me, Lord. The sinner. God, forgive me. And Jesus says, which one do you think went home justified that day? Certainly not the one that came to make an appearance. I have a little bit of an extended quote from John MacArthur, but I think it's, it's worth it if you can hang in there just for... It's not, it's not that long, but... Hang in there. He says, It grieves me that so many believers view the doctrine of God's sovereignty as a deterrent to a healthy, vibrant prayer life. That kind of thinking demonstrates an inadequate, incomplete, and unacceptable understanding both of God's sovereignty and of prayer. In truth, we pray because God is sovereign. He alone has power over all human events. In praying, we don't run from His sovereignty, we run to it. It's absolutely true that God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. Job acknowledged that. 
Even the number of every person's days is determined. Job 14.5 Life and death are in his hands. James 4.15 Yet we eat and breathe and sleep and take measures to avoid any kind of calamity that might end our lives prematurely. Why? Well, that's the very same question as why pray if God is sovereign? And here's the answer to why we need to breathe, why we need to pray. God ordains the means as well as the end. And our prayers are one of the important means by which he accomplishes his will and glorifies himself in the process. Beloved, we need to learn to pray powerfully. We need to learn to pray purposefully. And we need to learn to pray passionately. That we might be one of the means of God accomplishing His will and glorifying Himself in the process. And we can learn from the examples of the past. So in these last three messages, we've seen the invisible hand of God behind our pain, our plans, our prayers. It's all providence. And it's really all a matter of worship when you think about it. Thinking rightly about God's providence is really a matter of worshiping Him for who He is. For all that He's accomplished in the past, for all that He will accomplish in the future, for all that He's accomplishing right now. You know, faulty worship lies at the root of so many of our problems, right? Anxiety, depression, anger, they all come because we want control and we can't have it. It's not ours to have. And yet we want it. And the more we try to wrestle God for it, the more it causes us problems. Correct worship involves embracing the true God, His sovereignty and His providence who causes all things, right? All things to work together to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. See, we we don't trust in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We learn to embrace the one who holds those circumstances in his hands. I like what Alistair Begg said. He said, when we worship God for the praiseworthy, powerful, providential God that he is, it changes our perspective. And I would add only one thing. It should result in a change of practice as well. The practice of prayer.